This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Tran here, welcome to The J Files, a podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music, all in less than 30 minutes. On this episode, it's South Australian band The Audrey's. But sometimes the stars Formed in 2004, the Audreys sprouted from the brilliant songwriting chemistry between Tristan Goodall and Tasha Coates. Together they traversed a space between alt country, folk, pop and rock and charmed us with songs that tugged at the heartstrings. From the small clubs of Adelaide in the early 2000s to conquering the world's stages, the sweet melancholia of their delicate folk and blues bagged the multiple ARIA awards over the years too. Sadly, founding member Tristan Goodall passed away in July 2022 at the age of 48. On this episode of The J Files, we'll take a look back at the career of his much-loved band and pay tribute to his legacy as well. I invited Tasha Coates and Tristan's brother, Cameron Goodall, onto the pod to share some of their favourite memories from across the years. I started by asking Tash and Cam to share something special about Tristan's character that we might be surprised by. One of the things Tristan loved to do was give people just ridiculous nicknames that often evolved over time. Uh, for example, he used to call me Barnes. Why? And that came because Tasha, Tash, Taj Mahal. And then that became Mahalia. And then when Mahalia Barnes put out a record, I just suddenly became Barnes. <laughs> And did you have one, Cam? What did he call you? Oh, he called me all manner of things. Yeah. Every pejorative term you could think of. Mm. <laughs> I was the younger brother, so we grew up just sparring with one another, really. But um, no, I don't know what he settled on. He, he called me Junior a lot. Yeah, Brosif. Yeah. Brosif, yeah, Brosifine. Yeah. Um, anything, <laughs> yeah. really. Just yeah, that. anything. Yeah. Our, our long-time drummer, Ben Wiesner, he used to call Cool Breeze Wees. I actually think he felt deeply uncomfortable calling people by their actual names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can relate to. Yeah. It's interesting hearing all of the, you know, the, this kind of clowning around and lighthearted humour and stuff and, and yet your music was just, you know, it, it had a very sombre kind of tone to it, wasn't it? It did. It did. And and uh, Tristan and I toured together a lot, just he and I, and um, uh, we were such good friends and shared so much humour that often between songs we'd be just goofing around and making jokes and then of course we'd have to go and now here's a really incredibly sad song. <laughs> it's true. Well, so Tris was, it was. Tris was the kind of person who really just wanted to connect with other people and mm. humour is one way of doing that, you know, but also writing a really sad, elegant song is another, yeah. you know, they're both yeah. just forms of wanting to connect with other humans. Tris and I would often, if we got in a songwriting rut, we'd often write a joke song. So we did have quite a collection of joke songs. Right. Um, 
uh, would just kind of get us, you know, get the juices flowing. But we never released any of them. Obviously. We used to, um, <laughs> like in the very early days, I don't know if you remember this, Tash, we used to warm yeah. up with Jolene, um, yeah, the Dolly Parton yeah, song, but sing like different sometimes. names. So it'd be like, Maureen. Yeah. <laughs> and then someone else would say, Arlene. And someone would say, Arlene. Anthony the Man Mundane, you know, wh- whatever you wanted to come up with, it rhymes yeah. with Jolene. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's like the whole word association thing with the nicknames and then, you know, playing yeah. around with lyrics. It's kind of loosening yeah. up your brain and, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. of course, we'd lead on to write something really sad. But we had like, like we wrote a song called You Fixed My Car, which was about an ode to a mechanic. Um, oh, I can't remember that. There were so many silly things. Wow. So yeah. the, all, the Aldridge could have been the Wiggles at one stage. Like, <laughs> yeah, we could I have put out car. a joke album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cam, were you listening to a lot of kind of you know, muck around songs growing up together. What are your, your um, firmest and fondest memories of music? Well, you know, like a lot of folks, it'd be your road trips with the cassette tape and it'd nice. be, oh, look, please don't play John Denver, Dad. West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home, country road. Well, actually, we started calling out Dad Jimmo, which Tris started, so... As a, I guess, a mark of a lack of respect. Um, <laughs> he just started calling him, and that's we call him Jimmo now. Um, so yeah, it'd be like the cassette tapes. Oh, please, no more John Denver. I remember listening to Cream in the car, and um, and Tris starting to fall in love with rock and roll music, and then me just sort of tagging along with him, really, and then him. Uh, well, really just starting to blossom as a guitarist and then just getting me to play bass in his, like, ACDC covers band. (laughs) Really only ever in the garage. He roped in a mate to play the drums and I I was, I think I was seven or eight playing the bass. How old was was Tristan? Bigger than me, he would have been 10 or 11. First Um, band at 10 and 7, that's amazing. yeah. Um, and then, so he originally was sort of like wanted to be a kind of rock guy, which I think mm. a lot of younger kids who aspire to be guitarists um, will have the, you know, those sort of aspirations. But then he started to develop a bit more taste, as he, you know, and he had that <laughs> kind of like um, that whatever it was that desire to be virtuosic as a guitarist yeah. gave way to him actually finding that sort of music despicable, <laughs> sort of like a he was still well, he still had a rock pig within him, but he yeah. didn't want to be well, show off. Yeah. He had long hair when I met him. He was still like f- like playing solos and then his hair would sort of fall over his face and he'd finish the solo and he'd do this big hair flick where all his hair would <laughs> go back behind him. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that, that's impressive that he discovered that early on because a lot of guys take a lot of years before they realise that, oh, you know, that whole macho, you know, showboating kind of guitar stuff. Yeah. You know? Is, is a bit shallow. It was sort of like, but he also, he kind of mastered that stuff too before he decided to dispense with it. You know, it was like, mm. yeah, and now that I can do yeah. that, now I'll that I choose can do that, not, I'm not to. I choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he learnt restraint, I guess. And then he taught me it as a, as a consequence of just being around him all the time. When Tristan and I met, we sort of found, like he was a rock guitarist and I was a jazz singer. And so we sort of found our middle ground was sort of this roots country stuff. So yeah. And for Tristan and I as well, like having listened to that 
and kind of uh, for a while not enjoying the fact that our dad kept playing this sort of more country music um, when we were younger. We then rediscovered it and like found a banjo somewhere and we'd always been sitting around with acoustic <gasps> guitars. But I remember oh, the like banjo. the first time he and I sort of sat opposite each other and locked eyes and well, I don't remember which one of us had the guitar and which one had the banjo, but we just started playing and, and there was this like just that eye contact and that little twinkle in mm. his eye that meant, mm. oh, this is going to go this. somewhere. There's a real pleasure here, yeah. whatever that yeah. is. And so he just like tapped into something. And then, and that, that was probably the heart of our collaboration, Tristan and I as, as musicians. And then yeah. obviously then when Tash came along, it was like, here we go. We've got the sweetest, smokiest voice and we've got, we've got something here. And the things we want the most, fetch not a penny, Tristan Goodall was able to put people at ease with his humour and this often helped get the creative process rolling. As Tasha explains, he also had a gift for seeing the potential and uniqueness in other people, encouraging them to have a go at things they'd never thought they could do. Well, I'd never been a songwriter up until I met Tristan and Tristan um, had always written songs, he and Cam and you know, it was always something they did and it's never, it was something I had no confidence doing. But he loved my voice and he wanted to push me to become a songwriter. Mm. And and so we, and we wrote a lot of the lyrics together. So, um, uh, and and he would write the music and I'd write the melody and then the lyrics would come out together. And, and of course, Cam collaborated on a bunch of stuff on the first record as well. So, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a, one of those things where the whole was greater than the sum of its parts, I think. Mm. So Tristan... Mm saw something in you. Well, you know, that, that smoky voice, he had to have that voice. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to ask you also about, Tasha, about your early musical influences. What were you mm. listening to at home? Uh, so um, my mum was listening to a lot of 70s singer-songwriter stuff, like Carole King. And it's too late, baby, now it's too late Though we really did try to make it Joni Mitchell I would still be on my feet. Just that classic, um, you know, beautiful folk music, really. But my dad had sort of a slightly cooler taste, if you like, and was more into um, Neil Young and, and Springsteen and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, and my dad was quite a vinyl collector, so I have a lot of memories of sitting on the floor with my dad with all these vinyls just, like, that kept sort of spreading across the floor, you know, as we pulled out more and more records and put them on and and he'd pick out these favourite tracks to play to me. And, and my dad, neither of my parents um, played music, but my dad did have a beautiful voice. Oh. He could sing, yeah. That's beautiful. And and they encouraged me to start. I started learning piano when I was just five or six. And then what music did you choose for yourself? Well, I wanted to study music Um and back when I studied music, there were really only two options. It was classical and jazz. And so I chose jazz over classical, but really I was never passionate about jazz. I wasn't a great jazz singer, I don't think. Wow. I was always really, really behind the beat and really lazy and, you know. Um, <laughs> Isn't that what jazz is? Like, it, well, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe. What beat? What beat are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just, I didn't, I, I just didn't have the, 
the passion for for I guess the same kind of thing like the technique of it and the and the I didn't go home and listen to it. I went home and listened to um, the Sundays or you know Mazzy Star or you know whatever I was listening to at the time. I wanna hold the hand inside you. I wanna take the breath that's true. What were the early days like? Um, what will were the four members together then, or was it you just, and It was and just Tristan? the three of us to start with. Oh, okay. And we didn't really have a full set of original songs to begin with, so we would do, no. you know, sort of obscure covers, tasteful covers that we'd like, <laughs> um, aspirational covers. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, Mikey G, Mike, Mikey Green, um, who's an amazing singer-songwriter himself, actually, and a, a violinist, um, well, fiddle player. In the context of the Audrey's, mm, you yeah, wouldn't say yeah. violinist, would you? You'd say he's a fiddle player. Yeah, um, we, so. we sort of managed to get him on board and then he started playing gigs with us. And then we were sort of stretching between Adelaide and Melbourne. I had a really, really crappy flat in Melbourne and a really crappy flat in Adelaide. And I would go back and forth. And this was back when flights were really expensive. So I'd catch the, the bus oh, in between. Oh, I remember between, doing that. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, just so many the nights. The firefly. The firefly. <laughs> Why take to the sky when you can fly. When you fly, can firefly. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was in those days when we were like, oh, all that, all that hard work at the beginning, you know, just gigs for 50 bucks or 100 bucks. Yeah. Actually, when Tris died, um, a book, I, I discovered this book, a journal that, Tristan Tarsh had kept um, of all those early gigs and all the note taking that they did. I wasn't involved in this. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Right. It's a record of, um, uh, it says like obviously the venue, um, who the sound person was, oh and then a brief goodness. little review of how they were, what? you know, sort of like, oh, they, they were great. They were great monitors or whatever, you know, yeah. um, in case we Our wanted, set list. if we wanted to work with them again, it'd yeah. be a phone yeah. number. Um, yeah. and then the set list and then set a little, list. a brief description of the crowd or. And, oh my and gosh. it's a real journey. As and then if, how as much we got paid, which was always like 50 bucks. Yeah, sometimes bucks like 50 or, yeah. bucks yeah. or 100 bucks. Yeah. And then it'd be like, oh, this one was for free, but we think it might lead to something. And mm. um, this one was, you know, whatever. But it, it, there's a real narrative to it. As you flip through the pages, you see like the, obviously the amount of money we're getting starts to go up, which is great to see. <laughs> and um, and the, the crowd numbers too. And then eventually mm. this book sort of, well, this particular book peaks with WOMAD. Um, and I remember, Tash, we had to try and get a something that we could sell at WOMAD because it was we That's didn't have right. a recording yet. Yeah. So yeah. We, we cobbled a, some sort of recording together. Oh, and then, recording. Yeah. And then that, it really felt like we were going somewhere. And it's, I think it's in Tris' writing in the book. It says, WOMAD, it's really true. Oh. <laughs> so you can see how much he had cared about it, like getting to yeah. that point. The Audrey's debut album, Between Last Night and Us, was produced by Shane O'Mara, whose CV is pretty extensive and who's worked on each of the Audrey's albums since. So how did a young, unknown band from South Australia manage to get such experienced hands on their first album without so much as a demo behind them? Well, remember that recording the band cobbled together to sell at their first WOMAD gig? it ended up travelling a little further afield and changed the band's fortunes. We sent that to Shane O'Mara, who was our dream producer. We thought we'd just start at the top and work down from there. Yep. <laughs> and, um, and he rang us and said a bunch of swear words, but um, the gist of it was, great, let's do it. And 
and so we were in the studio later, later 2005, and then the record came out in 2006. Oh, it was because of that recording. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he saw us live. Um, he never saw us live. Made that decision, yeah. Because yeah. interestingly, when we went in and we demoed some of the songs um, for him, he was like, Look, you guys have clearly been playing in pubs and you're strumming mm. your guitars, you're hitting your guitars too hard. What say I have like a no strumming rule? What if I almost ban plectrums or, you know, and, mm. and Tristan and I went, oh my God, what's going to happen here? <laughs> and so we just decided to radically change our technique and the way we mm. played together oh. and and suddenly and started sort playing. Of picky and beautiful. Really gentle. Yeah. So you had to come up with yeah. an alternative for, for doing something that would have been strummy. And so yeah. on that first Audrey's record, you, you, there's only a couple of moments where guitars are strummed. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really picky and it's really, there's other yeah. ways of playing. Uh, and so um, Shane ended up calling Tristan and I the Gently Brothers because we took, <laughs> obviously took his advice so literally that we ended up playing so gently that some of those. Well, he'd have to come in and turn uh, all the microphones yeah. up. And, yeah. Some of the tracks you can hear Trist breathing. It's so, yeah. we were playing both of us so quietly. A lot of those um, tracks were recorded with Tristan and I sitting opposite each other mm. with two guitars or a guitar and a banjo or whatever. Um, laying down a, a, a track to begin with, and it's very intimate and very quiet. What was uh, like a song that was a, a kind of a revelation? Listening back to it, kind of going, "Whoa, yeah." <laughs> uh, yeah, Cam, I reckon early recordings of you and Steve McQueen are so different to the way it turned out on the record. I think that yeah. I think that was a big one that that went through a lot of shifts. Yeah, I remember and I remember you coming up with that beautiful banjo, that ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da. You know that really pretty banjo line on there. That's Trist, actually. You... Oh, is that yeah. Trist? Yeah, yeah. This is but the I thing. But I reckon you guys came up with that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, I think you. I think we came up with that like in the studio. Yeah. I don't think that was something we'd been doing live. Mm. I remember playing the, the acoustic guitar for that and just trying to create the feeling of the rhythm mm. of a rhythm section, but only with the mm. guitar and just sort of like yeah. having this sort of brushy technique and. Yeah. Working with your dream producer on your very first album, I mean, yeah. that in itself must have been a head spin. Um, it was quite a buzz, yeah. <laughs> did um, well, You talked about you and Steve McQueen changing quite a yeah. lot. What about the rest of the songs? <clears throat> I think they all went through a, a, a process of mm. where... Um, like like how Cam said, we'd been playing in noisy pubs, mm. and I think I think o- tending to overplay, yeah. um, to try and grab people's attention, whereas what we did in the studio was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas try and bring people closer, mm. um, and so I think all of the songs went through that that process, and also Shane, you know, Shane did his producer thing on some of them and came up with ideas that we never would have had. That's right. Yeah, there's, a, there's like a real spaghetti western kind of moment. Yeah. It's just entirely Shane. <laughs> yeah. But there's like a lot of like Tris playing the year on the record. He and I had prepared a lot, you know, to go, go into the studio. But then Shane would record what you'd prepared and then he'd say, no, just do something that you've never done before. You know, he'd say like, yeah. oh, oh, you did that, but now I don't want you to play a single note you've prepared. Yeah. Just, just play something. And then he'd say like, just play a lot less actually, mm-hmm. you know, just a lot less. Just come in, wait, just come in for a little bit and then come out, you know. And so, again, that was that the sort of restraint that um, mm. Tris was starting to develop in his understanding of what music, how much space could exist in music. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, listening to that album when we first got it, uh, you know, you felt instantly he's a band who's really comfortable, you know, sort of letting those spaces exist and, and, yeah. 
and letting the emotion kind of come mm. out in its own time. There's nothing hurried about it. Yeah. No. I think we've got that um, confidence from Shane to do that, really. Yeah, And I just to go, it's that. okay to just have a guitar yeah. play on its own for a bit and then have the voice come in and then go, just go back to just the guitar. Mm. And he's, he's masterful at helping a song sort of grow, like the shape of a song. He'll start with bare minimum and then start to build in layers. Mm. But I, was, I remember being really surprised at how little bass he wanted to use in the recording, mm. that he would make a guitar sound really warm and... And yeah. you don't need to. You almost it. didn't need it. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's only like three or four songs on that record that actually have bass guitar in them. Are you kidding? And Oh Honey yeah. doesn't have any bass on it. No. It's just, it's just, it's drums. just a really no, fat, no really bass. fat kick drum and yeah. two guitars. Two guitars. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's got quite a, you know, mm. a low end yeah. kind of thrummy I know. arm oh. through it. I'm just like, only three well, or four One of the songs. guitars is a national guitar, like a dobro. So, um, and, you know, they, they can get a big <laughs> bottom end. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Amazing. That's where uh, that sound comes from. Released in 2006, the Audrey's first album changed everything for the band. It got them immediate attention with Radio Airplay, an ARIA award for Best Blues and Roots album, and more extensive stints of touring. But the success had a negative impact on the making of their second album, 2008's When the Flood Comes. Tristan and I spent about three weeks in the Chelsea Hotel in New York writing, um, and we spent a, a, a couple of days in Nashville seeing some shows. We definitely got the difficult second album blues because the first one had just been so... We had no expectations, and it was just sort of so joyful. And and then suddenly everyone was going, "Well, where's your second album?" And, and that pressure was something we'd never written a song with, and so we found it quite challenging. Mm. But once we got over that, and that album won an aria as well, which yeah. was also weird. The next two records after that were easier and more, and we went we went back to enjoying the process and having fun and getting lots of guests in and. Yeah, it was it was just a great journey. Wake in the morning with a head so heavy that it makes me cry. Through the blind, the sun burns so brightly that it shakes me dry. As Tash mentioned, the Audreys recruited some special guests for their next two albums. Their third album, Sometimes the Stars, saw them collaborate with the likes of Tim Rogers. Paul Grabowski and Michael Barker from John Butler Trio. Released in 2010, it saw the band pick up their third straight ARIA award for Best Blues and Roots album. On the next record, things took a slightly different turn. Tasha and Tristan threw down the gauntlet to their band and opened themselves up to noisier musical terrain, which is something they'd never really explored before in the Audrey's. So we tracked most of the record in three days. Um, wow. It, so live, you know, live band sort of stuff, you mm. know, Rolling Stones style. Um, but then did the vocals and the overdubs later back at Shane's studio. Yeah, yeah right. But it was fun. Some of the and the other thing we did, which was kind of mean but also really awesome, was we didn't give the band any de- demos or charts or anything. They didn't know what they were going to be playing when they turned up. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't in that band. I'm quite glad. I know. I'm 
was kind of mean, but also really funny. And Figure fun. this out. Mm. Yeah, and exciting because they just had to kind of go, you know, they weren't allowed to right. overthink anything. Mm. Mm. That sounds like a Shane O'Mara slash It was very much a Shane O'Mara uh, yeah. uh, idea. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, fun but also a little bit mean. <laughs> mm. um, well, the results speak for themselves. It's not as though, mm. you know, the, the album isn't a, another great one to add to your catalogue. Um, but, you know, my, my darling girl, I was just like, is Jack yeah. White playing guitar on that? <laughs> was it a little bit surprising, though, to people to hear this, this rock ferocity coming out of Tristan at this stage? Well, it, always, it had always been there. Yeah. Um, he he and, never and, let and, it know, fly as much yeah, as Yeah, but there. you have to. And, and, of course, Shane is an incredible rock guitarist as well. So we just sort of let them off the leash, I reckon, on that record. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Shane actually toured with us on that record too. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did I play on that record as well? Like, um, you I, did. You came yeah. in and played some acoustic guitar and did yeah. some singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, it's no surprise to me that, like, Trist would have to get rockier at some stage mm-hmm. and Tash too, mm. you know. The sweet and sultry voice also has an appetite for the rock pig. Destruction. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> appetite for destruction. Yeah, to quote Gina. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just great. It's great to hear him play like that. And this is the thing about records now. You can listen to that and go, oh, wow. Across the Audrey's catalogue, there's such a lovely range of playing from Trist that I can go back to and listen to now. All of that is like it comes out of our childhood playing together and going like, well, what can you do or what can I do? Well, you know, let's challenge <laughs> each other. You know, like some brothers will be like, they spend all their time playing cricket with one another and they become better cricketers as a result. Well, we did a little bit of that, but it was mostly like, let's play guitar together, you know. In the years before his death, Tristan Goodall had to step back from touring due to ill health, but he encouraged Tasha Coates to continue on with the band. When news of his passing broke, it prompted an outpouring of love from fans. Reflecting on his legacy, Cam and Tasha shared more about what Tristan loved most about music and what he wanted to bring to others in his own songcraft. For Trist, songs were a way to connect with people, but they're also a place for ideas, you know, like songs can be their own little worlds. And I think he he always had an interest in music being elegant and restrained, but uh, having possibilities within it that music could could just suddenly change or go somewhere within a song. So it feels unpredictable or it feels like it has potential, like it's loaded like a spring. Mm. Um, but that within that, words can just do anything, you know, mm. that they're... Like songwriting is the poetry really of our age. And I remember, I mean, so many fond memories of driving with Trist. And when you're in a band in Australia, you just, more than any other country, you just drive and drive and drive Mm -hmm. from gig to gig. But listening to music with him and talking about it, um, which again, we did as kids. I remember he had a double bed and we would just lie on that double bed together and just play song after song for each other. Like we were sort of each other's DJs. Um, but carrying that same energy out into driving between gigs and listening to music and talking about it 
Um, I remember listening to The Cure with him one time. For a guy that's like a rootsy guy, he, his <laughs> ultimate favourite band was The Cure, which is oh, really no, funny. This is you really know. true. He was like, he, he was in, he, he'd written down, let it be known, in the event of my death, let it be known that The Cure are the greatest band in the world, which I think is, it could have been him being a little bit contrary. Like his, yeah. <laughs> He often had almost obnoxious opinions about music. Yeah, so it could have been that. But he did actually really love The Cure. And he and I, like driving one time, listening to Disintegration, um, the Cure album. He, I remember him saying to me, With, "If this album didn't exist, I think I would be utterly alone. I, I, I would never have got past that feeling uh, as as an adolescent of of that deep existential loneliness, unless someone else had kind of, in some way, put that into music." That's one of the great kind of gifts of music is that. You can take an experience, you can take a feeling, you can take whatever expression um, and then put it out there in recorded form or if you're playing in the corner of a pub, it doesn't matter. But then you make it available to someone else and then they don't feel alone. He was a musician with a wicked sense of humour. He was able to see the potential in others and fired them up to have a go. He was also an artist who remained totally invested in the magic and solace that music can bring. As Tasha Coates continues to write music and tour with a new lineup, it's safe to say that not only will the Audreys carry on, but Tristan's spirit and legacy will be with us for many years to come. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.